let's take a typical dive. Let's not go too far. Let's go to like the coast of Cornwall. We take a boat out into the middle of the ocean, the Atlantic. It's a beautiful day. The sea is not too wavy, but there's a little bit of wave. You take this big yellow buoy in which you have a dive line. You drop the line to however deep you want to go, let's say 50 meters. So you got a straight dive line so you know exactly, like, I won't wander too far from there. You click on the, onto the dive line with a lanyard. And then I just like to lay on the surface of the ocean and kind of literally get on the sea's wavelength. Because, you know, like you can feel the waves, like they kind of rock through your body. And if you let that happen, you instantly fall into the rhythm of the sea. And then you take a nice big breath. You turn around and you face that line and you face the depths of the sea, that blue. And you take a moment and then you just start swimming down gently, slowly. And the deeper you go, the smaller your lungs get. And at a certain point, your lungs are so small that you're no longer buoyant. So then comes the best bit. You can just stop swimming and you just start falling into that blue. And you can just completely surrender, like everything you have, you don't have to do anything anymore except for equalize. So everything you are is just in that little bowl of air in your mouth that you use to equalize your ear. And the rest of you just dissolves into the water. Like I, you slowly merge with something as powerful as an ocean. It's, it's, it's flying and you're surrounded by nothing but blue, green, these weird sounds of the ocean. Like you can't really hear the surface anymore, but the ocean is full of sound because sound travels further underwater. So there's little clings and sometimes you can hear dolphins in the, in the distance and sometimes you can hear boats miles away. But the overwhelming sensation, especially at depth, is one of your heartbeat. You can hear it go boom, boom every three seconds or so. And there's just a calmness. All other thoughts are gone. And then you come back up and you have, like, after a successful dive, the rest of your day is good. Because, like, you had one good dive, yet that moment of being at one with the sea, that means that's a good day. This is Oceans, Life Underwater, a new podcast all about the oceans and the mind-blowing life within them. I'm Hannah Stitfall. I'm a zoologist, wildlife filmmaker and broadcaster and I'm on a mission to learn everything I can about the Big Blue. The ocean is just mind-blowingly huge. Did you know that more than 70%, seven-tenths of the Earth's surface is covered in seawater? You could drop all of Mount Everest into the ocean and still you'd have an enormous amount of water above it. Over the next 12 episodes, I'll be talking to marine biologists, free divers, submarine pilots, explorers, ship captains, scientists, and policymakers, hearing the most incredible stories about our seas and the people who are devoting their lives to protecting them. You know, almost half of our planet is a vast ocean beyond national borders. And 
I believe that we have a, a collective responsibility to protect it. The ocean is important to Māori because without it we cannot thrive. Oranges, yellows, reds, just incredible layers of life. I mean, every square centimeter covered. If you've ever been in the richness of like the presence of a whale and her calf, you know inherently you want to preserve that. Protecting the ocean is not rocket science. We know how to do it. We just have to do it. This is Oceans Life Underwater, episode one. It's early 2024 and I'm sitting in a studio in Devon with Dan Verhoeven. Now, Dan's a freediver and a filmmaker. He's the official cameraman of the Vertical Blue competition in the Bahamas, which if you've watched The Deepest Breath on Netflix, you'll have heard of. It's the world's deepest blue hole at 203 metres, which is pretty incredible. Now, Dan's been freediving now for over 20 years and he lives in Cornwall with his wife, who is also the UK's free diving champion. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome on Dan. Hello, Dan. Hi, How Anna. are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Um, very well. Now, look, I love the oceans, but free diving is something that it slightly terrifies me, to be honest with you. Yeah. How would you persuade anybody that's sceptical about it to maybe give it a, a try? Well, like, obviously I understand the fear because like you can go without food for weeks, unpleasant weeks, but you can. You can go for a, without water for a couple of days, but without breathing, people, that makes people anxious. That makes people a little bit short of breath almost instantly. I think I did a similar thing to what most people had like in the beginning I remember being petrified of water as a kid like we had to take swimming classes and I was I was petrified it was so much water it was so scary it was so overwhelming mm -hmm. and the way I got over that is my stepfather took me on his back with like little floaties on my hand, uh, on my arms and he pushed off the wall and you could feel that rush of water and whenever I wanted to I could just let go of him and pop back up to the surface but then I got that, that first sensation of being able to fly. Like underwater, it's as close as you can get to flying for most people. And I love that sensation. So that fear almost instantly turned into a passion. Water and being underwater was always about playing. It was always about being free. Like you become an aquatic. You're no longer terrestrial. You're no longer breathing. So it becomes about being with water. Like, mm. I've been doing it 20 years. I know people who've been doing it 40 years. And it brings immense wealth to their lives. And, like, it, it's, it became part of my identity. It became who I am, in a way. Because, you know, I don't just go in the water and, and dive a little. Like, I also, I, I adjusted my diet. I stopped smoking. You know, I, I started going out more to freediving competitions. Like, it brought me out of what was essentially kind of a depressing life. Mm. And I guess, you know, when you're you're going to such great depths, there has to be a big sense of calm around it. You have to be in control and, I guess, lower your anxiety levels. Because imagine if you're diving down and then you start panicking. So I guess there's a kind of a, a sort of meditation with it as well. Yeah, I often say that freediving is 
kind of like the opposite of a normal extreme sport. Like most extreme sports are about adrenaline and how high can you pump up your heart rate and you have to make six million decisions in one second. Whereas with freediving, you want everything to slow down as much as you can because you want to make your oxygen last as long as you can. And so your heart rate, just by putting your heart, uh, your face in the water, your heart rate drops by 20 or 25%. And as soon as you go deeper, the deeper you go, the lower your heartbeat gets. So instead of going to like 180 or something, or like extreme sports, like two something until your heart explodes, now it goes down and down and down and until like 20 beats a second, 15 maybe. And you can actually notice that. Like if your heart slows down, your thoughts tend to slow down and your whole pace slows down. Everything becomes languid, liquid, slow. Everything becomes fluid. And it's a really nice state to be in, especially if you can do it for a couple of minutes. My wife can hold her breath for seven minutes. Not many. Seven minutes? Seven minutes, yeah. I can do it 6.45 and she's still giggling that. that. (laughs) (laughs) she's a much drives you. No, I love it. I love seeing her perform well. Um, And she's a much better freediver than I am. But the sensation she gets, like you don't need to do the whole, your breath for seven minutes to have those interesting sensations. Like if you just lay down and hold your breath, it can be very pleasant for like a minute or two minutes. You know, you don't have to swim 200, 300 meters underwater to know what it's like and to feel that sensation of like, what is this? This is like flying, you know? You don't mm-hmm. have to dive to 60, 70 meters even. Like I've had really pleasant dives to five or 10 meters and just being there and just hanging around. You know, it doesn't need to be extreme. But yeah, in, in its competitive form, yeah. But that's competition, isn't it? And I guess the further you go down, hmm. I mean, the sound, you you must be hearing different types of sound and feeling different sensations the, the lower down you get. I mean, how far have you ever freedived down before? I'm I'm a very mediocre freediver. I've been down to 65. Mediocre? <laughs> I think that's pretty good. The world record is 140 so, or 136. So I, uh, yeah. I could do probably about two. So, you know. You'd be surprised, actually. <laughs> You'd be very surprised. Most people say that. But um, what also would surprise you is the sensations down there. Like the sound, I think a lot of freedivers do it because it's so nice and quiet. Mm. Like not just externally, like internally it gets quiet too. Like everything you do out here in, in, in the air world, so to speak, there's too many sensations almost, isn't there? Like there's a lot of bright lights and there's a lot of sound and there's a lot of smells. None of that is down there. Mm. The sounds are quite muffled actually. Like the light is very, I always compare it to honey. It seems like light seems to slow down. It's one of the things I love about being underwater. Like the light does slow, slow things and it's like it makes beautiful patterns everywhere. But at 50 meters deep, there's almost no light anymore. So everything is kind of muted. Most colors have disappeared. That's a sort of freedom, freedom from yourself as well, combined with the notion of like, you are a part of this. 
like an intrinsic knowledge like you are part ocean ocean is part you you have salt water in your in your body you are a part of this and for me that connection like feeling connected to something is like the opposite to what i used to feel you know mm. and then all of a sudden you're part of an ocean and part of a community that loves the ocean now one thing that does really interest me and i know it will interest our listeners as well so i guess when you're free diving you must see a whole host of marine species underwater tell us some of your best stories of what you've what you've seen what are your best wildlife encounters so one of the reasons i started free diving in egypt was there were dolphins and we were snorkeling with them and diving with them, well free diving with them in a way and I got the distinct impression that they were making fun of me <laughs> because they kind of look at you like, really, that's how you swim? Are you okay? Because <laughs> like, they're so aquatic. And they're highly intelligent, so they yeah. probably were thinking that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they kind of look at us and go like, are you okay? What is that on your feet? Why are you swimming oh, like that? Are you? He's crying. <laughs> he's like, oh, poor you. <laughs> Have you been injured? <laughs> so that was the beginning and then in 2022, we went f- for the first time to go free dive just with nature, just to see the beasts. And I was in Mexico and I was a humpback whale. And it was two in the beginning and they were just kind of hanging out at like 10 meters, you know, like normally they, they kind of cruise through there and you see them as a, like a drive-by kind of thing. Mm. But this one, was, these two were hanging out just chilling at 10 meters and they were kind of testing us to see like, <laughs> let's see what these, let's see what these people can do. So in the end I took, like I never do selfies, but I took a selfie with a humpback and my wife at 25 meters. I think, I think that's allowed. I yeah. think that's okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah. But here's the thing. Like I, I always try with, with wildlife encounters. It's about them. It's not about me. And you're in their territory, it's their home. So I'm very respectful of that. So you kind of, you don't want to disturb them. If they're okay with me taking pictures, if they're okay with me filming, I, I can usually, you can tell, you know? Yeah. Like they don't try to run away or anything. But every time she or he came up, I noticed that she was making sure that she wasn't plowing right through us. Because it's like, mm. it's the size of a bus. Yeah. It could easily disregard <laughs> us and just like, poof, bump us out of the way but no she was looking and like where are the people and surfacing where the people weren't and making sure that she wouldn't hit anybody and everything so she was looking at us as much as we were looking at her and like being respectful of each other so to start with dolphins kind of making fun of how crap you are and then 18 years later being able to hang with a whale at 25 meters like it was one of those moments where I kind of, after having experienced that and having that giant eye look at you and connect with you at 25 meters, I, I think it's the highlight of my life. Like I hung with a whale at 25 meters. And I guess it was that is that change from just being a free diver to doing the camera work underwater. Mm. And that led you to being the main cameraman on the biggest free diving competition in the world yeah so 
Vertical blue is, they call it the Wimbledon of freediving. Mm. And it's kind of true. For, it's, it's held in this place in Dean's Blue Hole in, um, in Long Island. And I'm not a religious person, but the first time I saw Dean's Blue Hole, I had a bit of a, a religious moment because it looks like somebody put their finger down and went like, you shall freedive mm. here. Because it's 15 meters off the beach. Okay, so this is like the Bahamas, right? So the beach is white sand, of course. There's palm trees all around. It's romantic as hell. Turquoise water, perfect, perfect, perfect. And then all of a sudden there's this rock formation in a 180 degree circle protecting a hole in the beach that goes down 200 meters. It's unbelievable. So everything about that place is perfect. So it's only natural that the best competition in the world takes place there. And that's Mm. where, you know, a lot of world records are being set. When I was watching The Deepest Breath on Netflix, I think they they used the analogy that 103 is like swimming down the Statue of Liberty twice. (laughs) Yeah. So... So what's what's the latest world record? I mean, how how much is it now? One thirty six. So the world record is the equivalent to three Statues of Liberty. I think it's is it the Victoria Tower. The Big Ben is in yeah. Big Ben. That the the, the the big big tower. That's about ninety. So one thirty six is a one and a half <gasps> Big Bens. Wow. Yeah. It's a long way. That's a very long way. Yeah, Alexei is a beast. Alexei Molchanov is. At the moment, probably the best freediver in the world. And he is, yeah, he's a freak show. He's a a lovely (laughs) man, but he's like, his lungs are enormous. His thighs are enormous. His butt is enormous. It's like everything about that guy is enormous. Enormous. His joy (laughs) is enormous. Like I call him the golden retriever of freediving because he goes after that, after that bottom plate as like, my golden retriever does after a tennis ball. So yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's so much enthusiasm there. It's he loves it. I think that's the big thing. Like with him and with all the champions I've seen, and I think in the deepest breath that kind of also, you could see that in Alessia. Mm. There's a real hunger and a real joy for being in the ocean and for doing it. Mm. Like all the greats I've seen, not only train hard but they also play. Like they have that that quality that water has. Like water is is a lot of things, but it's also inherently playful. There's a a, a joyous, playful quality to water, and 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 the greats all have that ability to play with it. And for anybody listening that would want to try free diving, what would be your top tips, and how could they get involved? Top tip is don't try it by yourself. Like freediving is safe as long as you do it under qualified supervision. So get a course, a freediving course, anywhere in the world. Most people think they have to go to tropical waters to try it, but here in England it's lovely as well. So I would say if you're in England, like find a local club and find a local instructor, find some buddies. And then the second tip is, like, don't make the mistake that I made. Like, I started freediving first for the sensations, and that was good. But then it became an ego thing. Like, I wanted to set national records and that kind of stuff. And national records don't mean anything. Like, I've set, 
I don't know how many, and it didn't change anything in my life. But if you dive for the sensations and just for the relaxation of it, and then you'll always, always have a good time, whether you do a personal best or not, it doesn't matter, you know. And over the 20 years that you've been doing this for, I mean, have you, I bet you, you know, you must have freedived all over the world. Have you seen a, a difference in, say, the amount of wildlife you encounter now under the water than you did, say, 20 20 years ago. Have you seen a, a change in species abundance? Yes. Two things I've witnessed is increasingly, even in places as par paradisical as the Bahamas, much more plastic. Uh, animals stuck in plastic, trapped in plastic. You see that. <sighs> like Dahab is known for its coral it's there's some bleaching going on there it's it's less abundant you can see it suffering there and 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 fish stocks like if you dive in the mediterranean there's nothing there you have to go to like 40 50 meters and then maybe you see something but wow yeah yeah which is a real shame because like as soon as you come into like a marine protected area they're there yeah. you know but like you diving in cyprus it's like Endless blue water, and it's really pretty, but... There's nothing there. Not really, no. And what would you say your hopes are for the future of our oceans? So, I used to get more and more pessimistic about it, because I kept seeing things getting worse. But then I went to a place called Cabo Pulmo in Mexico, and they did an interesting thing there. They were... It's, an, it's traditionally been a fishing village. And they were fishing so much, and also with dynamite and everything, like stupid mm. fishing. And they realized that they were kind of destroying the habitat and destroying their livelihood. So the whole place kind of voted and made a decision to be conservative and to stop fishing for a while and instead focus on tourists. So they stopped overfishing and they started doing this ecotourism thing not letting in hordes and hordes of people, but like in sustainable, responsible, responsible yeah. numbers. And their, their economy is blossoming because of it, but also the ecosystem is blossoming. It's completely regenerated in 20 years. There's more sharks than ever. The, the schools of jacks are bigger than ever. Mm. And it seems to be very sustainable and it's really beautiful. And I think that is the way forward. I saw that in, in other places in, in Baja as well where instead of like depleting the ocean, they're kind of showing its richness and abundance to people. And it's kind of like with whales and whaling, like a live whale is worth more than a dead whale. Like, Absolutely. And I mean, to us that makes inherent sense because mm -hmm. like, what's better than to, to swim with a whale? Yeah. But if you've never experienced it and like whale is something like you might, see on National Geographic once while you're zapping or you don't care about whales but like if you've ever been in the richness of like the presence of a whale and her calf you know inherently you want to preserve that so I think what gives me hope is ecotourism mm -hmm. and people seem to be becoming more aware of like the plastic 
attitudes are changing even in the last sort of 10 years since I've been doing this as a as a job there's been a huge change Mm. around awareness and and attitudes towards ocean conservation and conservation in general people are people are interested now Mm. you know yeah so yeah I'm I'm definitely hopeful but I have a feeling it's like we're trending a little bit downwards still but I'm hopeful. And also in general, like the ocean is such a powerful creature. Like it it will, it will regenerate. Well, thank you, Dan. It's been lovely talking to you today. I'm going to have to come and see you and your wife in yes. Helston. You're only down the road from me. Yeah. What's your excuse? Come on. <laughs> I have none now. We're Absolutely. dropping you down to a hundred meters. Please don't. Day one. <laughs> Please no, don't. Hannah, it's my pleasure. And yeah, drop by any time. Thank you. We, the season starts mid-April. So. Okay, mid-April. So it'll be it'll be a little bit warm. Can we leave it till August when it's like hot? Yes. Yeah. August okay. is probably a better idea. Great. But the water's is nice now too. I don't it's, believe you. It's ten degrees. Yeah. We'll give you a nice thick suit. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. But no, thank you so much for coming My on pleasure, with me. Anna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, we'll be back in a second, but before that, go and make yourself a cup of tea, a mocktail, whatever your beverage of choice, and check us out on socials. Now, we're on TikTok, Instagram, and X slash Twitter. And we've got some really cool freediving footage from Dan. At Ocean's Pod, spread the word. Now, that conversation with Dan blew my mind. And I want to know more about what he said there at the end about marine reserves. I mean, what is a marine reserve? Helen Scales is the person to ask. Helen is a marine biologist, author and broadcaster. Her new book, What the Wild Sea Can Be, which is all about the future of the oceans, comes out later this year. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Helen to the studio. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. No, thank you for coming in. We really appreciate it. So let's get into it. I mean, we, we know our oceans are incredibly important, but what is a protected marine reserve? So um, there are lots of different words for ways in which we protect the ocean. I mean, the general idea is to to decide that there are parts of the seas that we leave alone and that we um, remove as much as possible any of the human impacts that might affect what's living there. The big one, obviously, is, is fishing. Um, but because there are different types of reserves. Um, you know, some will allow some activities, some allow none at all. And you know, the, the the ones that certainly I feel most passionate about, and and many scientists and conservationists agree is what we need, are the really highly protected, strict marine reserves, where basically nothing, nothing damaging is allowed to happen at all. No forms of fishing, no forms of extraction, no forms of development, whether that's going in and looking for oil and gas, um, even surveying, you know, using kind of underwater sonar, that kind of thing. So basically just all of those damaging things that humans can do to ocean life are not permitted in those areas. And the reason those are so important is because we know that is the best way to let the ocean heal itself. And Currently, I mean, what percentage of our oceans have this higher level of strict protection that is 
is clearly needed. The last time I had a look, I think it's something, I think officially it's something around 3% of this <gasps> highly strictly protected. I think. I might be wrong. It might be less, <laughs> but it's not huge. And it is an important question to look at because you, you hear lots of figures being thrown around about maybe we've got 10% protected, more than that for particular countries perhaps. But the question is, what are we? You know, how is that protection being enforced? What kind of levels are we talking about? Mm. Um, and the really highly protected stuff is always a small portion of that. But I think it's just really important to not just look at the figure and say, okay, we've reached you know, a 2% or a 3 or whatever it is. It's so important to know where that protection is happening and how well it's happening, hmm. um, you know, and whether it's really having the benefits that protected areas do promise us. And it does happen. You know, it do, they do work if they're put in place well and they're well enforced in terms of helping biodiversity to recover, the abundance of ocean life to recover. We know that happens. Um, but there are these questions really, we, you know, I think it's important to, to ask about how ocean protection is being done and where it's being done. So Helen, how did you get into doing what you do? So I have, I guess I have always, for a very long time, I've felt this connection to the ocean. You know, my family has always been very nature loving, very outdoorsy. So it was just normal for me to be doing those things in those kind of places, you know, exploring the beaches. I always loved being in the water as well. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that's a big part of this is physically putting myself in the ocean and always loving that. And then it just kind of grew from there. Um, you know, I slowly realised that I could do something like study marine biology. That's the thing. And so <laughs> that was obviously what I was going to go and do. And then new things came along. And this idea of being a science communicator and talking about the ocean, I was not expecting at all. I really wasn't expecting that. I was not the kid at school who was brilliant at English and was writing amazing stories and, you know, was noted for being... I didn't... Words for me were just the thing that I needed to pass my exams and to write my reports. I completely agree, Helen. To be honest, <laughs> completely agree. <laughs> and... Then I kind of just had this aha moment and it was while I was studying for my PhD, you know, I was so into the science that I wanted to carry on and studying and I was very lucky to get a chance to do that. Um, but it was partly way through doing that. I was like, you know what? Stories are so important and it's such an important part of the ocean and the amazing things that I get to see in the ocean and the troubles that I've seen as well. And I want to tell people about that. I want to pass that on to other people. And I kind of just started having a go at various different ways of talking about the ocean um, and writing about the ocean. And I discovered that I really love it and I'm not bad at it too. Um, not to blow my own trumpet, you know, or whatever. Um, but, you know, I was like, I'm not bad at this. I, went, I remember going to a conference, a scientific conference about coral reefs, you know, one of the most beautiful, astonishing, incredible ecosystems we have in the ocean. Like who could not be utterly amazed by a coral reef and yet some of the talks I went to and I obviously won't name names because I can't even remember who they were but um, <laughs> I was like oh god I'm so bored how are you making this so boring um, you have such an incredible ecosystem you know and maybe you're studying worms on a coral reef but I don't even that is amazing and worms are amazing uh, so I thought you know what I'm going to do this better I can do this better so when I started doing my own talks I was like I'm going to tell stories and I'm going to make this engaging just because it's science doesn't mean it has to be boring the more I look the more I want to find out I never get to the point well I hope I never get to the point where I'm like 
Oh yeah, I'm bored now. Done that. I've done it. <laughs> we know all we need to know. I don't think it's going <laughs> to. And of course, there's still so much that we don't know about the oceans. And I was reading that they've just recently discovered the largest coral reef, 310 miles in length and up to 68 miles wide. Incredible. That is huge. It is huge. And that's only recently been discovered. This is the one off the coast of the United States. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the wonderful thing about that is, uh, is that it's a deep reef. And, you know, we think of corals, obviously we think of coral reefs in the shallows and these incredible tropical places, which I've been very lucky to go to. Um, but they go on and on, down and down, and they exist, you know, miles down beneath the waves. Um, so there's so much more to corals and reefs than we might immediately think. Um, but yes, I mean, we are still learning so much about the ocean, especially in these deeper places, because we now have technologies to to look and to visit and to survey these areas that we didn't have before. Um, but for me... It's why, again, I think I'm never going to, we can't possibly ever get bored with the ocean because we're going to always be finding out new incredible things and not just the odd species here or there, but like you say, massive whole reefs full of wildlife, incredibly important for the health of the ocean. Um, and this is why they need to be protected because exactly. we're probably could be already losing species faster than they're even being discovered. Oh, absolutely. I think there's no, sadly, there's no doubt about that. But, um, yeah, we do need to find these sorts of especially fragile and vulnerable habitats like mm. a reef, which can so easily just be gone if we trawled it. Um, these are fragile structural habitats. You know, these deep sea corals, which live incredibly long lives, grow incredibly slowly in the dark, cold depths of the ocean. You know, we just have to avoid that damage in the first place. Mm. And we know that from places that have been trawled, you know, seamounts, deep sea mounts and places which you know, were trawled maybe 40, 50 years ago. And luckily then protection has been put in place. But the recovery is so slow. Mm -hmm. We really need to stop it from happening in the first place. I mean, when eco-anxiety about things like this, when I look at them, it's it's real. It's almost like I, I want to turn away and I think, oh God, there's there's no hope. We're destroying everything. I mean, you are working frontline in, in ocean conservation and ocean communication. Is there ever a point it gets too much for you? Well, I don't think it's got a point where it's become too much entirely. And I've, you know, had to, I don't know. I mean, I keep doing it, right? Um, but it is a question that I've wrestled with for a long time, actually, this idea of how, whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic about the future and how to, how to carry on talking about things like conservation and still loving the ocean and still feeling like an ocean person when you see and you hear about so many of the troubles that ocean life faces. And, you know, and so so for for some time, I have kind of had this personal battle going on within myself of like, well, where do I focus? You know, I think that as a communicator as well, I think that's one of the big questions is, well, what do I do? Do I carry on telling people about how incredible the ocean are and, and, and ocean life is and talk about the science and the discovery? And I love that side of things. But at the same time, I also feel the need to tell people about the problems. And, I, and, and I, I've come to a point where I think I need to have both. Not all of the time. Um, and there needs to be a balance. And I, but I do think I, we can't turn away from the troubles. Um, 
and it's going to just be a case of sort of finding that personal balance within ourselves and and in the you know in in what we do in the work we do um i mean it's why i wrote my book really um this book that's coming out later this year was really kind of my answer to that question which i get asked a lot which is am i hopeful for the future of the ocean because i didn't have a very good answer for it so i'm being an author i did what feels natural and i wrote a whole book about it <laughs> A 90,000 word answer. And what, what's the conclusion in the book, if you can say? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really a kind of, the kind of formal version of the answer, or kind of, if I want to, if I want to sound a bit more smart about it, I'll talk about the fact that many other great thinkers and philosophers have, have talked about the idea of pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. So, in other words, it is possible to, to understand and engage with the troubles of the world in whatever way you might be talking about. And obviously we're talking about the environmental problems in the ocean. Um, you can understand that. And, and one thing I want to do with the book is, um, and I hope I don't put people off, but I do talk about some of the big troubles. And I think we need to know, and I don't think we should shy away from understanding the vulnerability of species like emperor penguins in Antarctica, for instance. Or the fact that pelagic sharks are having a terrible time because of things like long lining and industrial fishing. Um, but we need to understand why that's happening and then ultimately what could be done to undo that. Um, so it's that pessimism because we understand things are bad. We can't ignore that. But it's the optimism of the will in the sense that we can really commit to wanting that future to be better. And I don't think that is kidding ourselves. I think there genuinely is reason now to be hopeful that things can be better. We don't have to give up on and say, well, it's just going to be worse in the future. The ocean is going to be worse than it is now. Sure, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers amongst species and humans as well in terms of how we use the ocean. But we can push towards as much of a fair and just version of the ocean in the future. And that's one of the strong messages I want to say in the book is, you know, there's a lot of in, you know inequalities in terms of the damage that's happening and who it's affecting um, and who's benefiting from the ocean. And we can push for, you know, as, as great a portion of nature is helped and protected and as many people can benefit from the ocean as possible. And, and that, for me, is a hopeful version of the future of the ocean, if we can push towards that. And, and, and we can. We can do that. We know what to do. We just need to do it. Yeah. But I really, for me, I think, I know that's kind of an overarching thing, but the fact that there is just this greater and growing all the time more people are becoming ocean people. Like I do, like anyone can be an ocean person and feel that connection to the sea and to sea life, no matter where you are in the world. And I think there are more and more people who are becoming that and feeling that link. And that for me, I think is a really hopeful change. And the 30 by 30 goal is to protect 30% of the oceans by 2030. You know, it's in the name. Do you think that, 30 by 30 is a realistic goal. Do you think it, that we can actually do it if everybody sorts themselves out? We can do it. Of course we can. We can do anything. We've shown, you know, we've we've got examples of big things that have been done to help nature and to help the ocean, um, you know, to to really push against those things that people once said were impossible. You know, even things like disasters like... Um, like COVID-19 showing us that if we're pushed into a tight spot, humanity can do incredible things and we can figure things out. So we can figure this out. Protecting the ocean is not rocket science. We know how to do it. 
But we absolutely have to be thinking of the entire ocean. You know, I keep sort of slipping in and out in this conversation of using ocean and oceans, singular and plural. When I'm really concentrating, you know, for me, it is, it's one ocean. Like it is all connected. We, we give bits of it names. Yeah, we separate it into yeah, five, but it is, exactly. it's one, it's it is. one thing on, it, it on is. its own. Exactly. So, the, you know, it is, it is the ocean. It is the only one we've got. And, um, and we need to be thinking about all of it. And people are. And that's, again, it's where I get a lot of hope is that more people than ever are realising how important the ocean is for all of us, um, for the health of the planet. Um, and we're pushing for that more hopeful future. Well, listen, Helen, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been fascinating talking to you. When's the book out? I think it's June. I'm going to just have a little look at this copy here. Yes, 6th of June. <laughs> I should know that. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Next week, I'm meeting a submarine pilot and we're diving down to the ocean's deep. Now, before you all go, I just wanted to share a final nugget with you. At the end of each episode, I'm going to bring you something a bit special. You're going to meet someone who lives or works near, on or in the oceans. A short feel-good story from the high seas to show us what real people are doing now to protect the oceans. So here it is. My name is Usnia Granger and I have been sailing with Greenpeace International for about 15 years. Um, where we are right now is actually pretty exciting. We are on board the Arctic Sunrise en route to the Galapagos. Um, it's a pretty phenomenal place to visit. We have about 16 crew members on board and 10 people joining from the campaign side of things. I will put down the water level again. So Greenpeace is well known in a lot of different ways, but one of them is for ocean defense and our presence to be able to go places that no one else is. So there's illegal fishing ha happening somewhere in the middle of the big blue. We can go check it out at the source. She's an ice-breaking vessel, um, which is really exciting. She can go to the Arctic and go to the Antarctic. I will say that she's also a unique vessel, that her, her, um, the bow is really rounded in order to be an ice-breaking vessel, so she rolls, they say she rolls like a pig, yeah? Uh, like a pig rolling in mud. You get sea legs very fast, or you're just out and seasick for a really long time. Coming up, we already prepared this. So we left about three days ago from Balboa, Panama and are in transit now to the High Sea Mounds and then to the Galapagos Islands. So one of the main goals of this expedition, this scientific expedition, is to really document the natural wildlife under the water and how these areas are doing in areas that are already protected in marine reserves and areas that are not, that are open to all types of fishing and bycatch. Um, so to really make scientific evidence on how much these protections allow the natural world to flourish and regenerate and restore. Like a pro. <laughs> I just feel like eternally grateful to be able to be a part of this team. Like where else can you be on a ship with people from around the world that are here because they're passionate about what they're doing and their love for the natural world and then being able to experience it in the wilderness together is just, yeah, I feel lucky every day. This episode was brought to you by Greenpeace and Crowd Network. 
It's hosted by me, wildlife filmmaker and broadcaster Hannah Stitfall. It's produced by Anna Stauffenberg and our executive producer is Steve Jones. Editing and sound design is by Anna Stauffenberg. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. Archive, courtesy of Greenpeace. The team at Crowd Network is Catalina Noguera, Archie Biltcliffe, George Sampson and Robert Wallace. The team at Greenpeace is James Hansen, Flora Havesi, Alex Yallop, Janae Mayer and Alice Lloyd-Hunter. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>